Hello and welcome back to North 100, a Canadian Highlander podcast. We're looking a lot more like North 50 today, but don't worry about it, we're going to get through. I'm Liam, this is Jeremy. Uh, the others are off road questing, so we're going to get through this episode. Uh, we want to thank you before we start the show. Uh, as always, we couldn't do this without your support over at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun, so thanks so much for that. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, a couple of different topics that are near and dear to Jeremy's heart, but before we do that... We gotta get into the opening segment, which is the best card you're not playing, and that's gonna be me this week. The best card you're not playing is Custody Lich, uh, not Custody. Well, I mean, maybe Custody, but it's hard. It has an eye. He's not probably a not a custodian. She Lich. She Lich. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I don't know the the I, lore. I, I don't. I'm, I have no idea. All right. I'm anyway, lore on the lore. They, the Custody Lich, uh, is a four-two for three black black. It's a zombie cleric. Goes into the cleric's deck. Uh, one of the better ones, to Get be honest. Your clerics. <laughs> so this, this card says, when Custody Lich enters the battlefield, you become the monarch, uh, and whenever you become the monarch, target player sacrifices a creature. So uh, basically you play this, you become the monarch, they sac a creature. The monarch, for those of you who don't know, is a sort of like, I mean, it's a weird thing, right? It's like it's a, a state, state yeah. of the game where at, at your end step, you get a, a trigger to draw a card. Um, so and and if you receive combat damage, whoever dealt you the combat damage gets t steals the monarchy yeah, away from they you. They become the monarch exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the monarch's a really interesting mechanic actually, in that it was like designed for multiplayer formats and is kind of completely busto in yes, ours. <laughs> yes, oh, definitely wasn't balanced based around one one v one formats, and has even crept its way into legacy with palace jailer in that format as yeah. well. And, when stuff's getting into legacy, you know it's yeah, it's pretty good. Made like, a big big impact in like popper. Four as mana well. two twos not not often making the cut in legacy, but yeah, yeah. So why is this card good? Well, for one thing, it's at worst it's a five mana removal spell, and you draw a card uh, because they and can't you, take. And the you get a four two. And you get a four two. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, they can't take the monarch until their turn, so you're always going to be the monarch for at least one turn. And what's really nice about Custody Lich in particular is that it's the, maybe the best of the monarch cards at punishing people for taking it back. Um, because yeah. every time the monarch switches, you're getting way more value than they are. I've actually seen that trigger missed so often. People just read it as when you enter the battlefield, you become the monarch. And when this enters the battlefield, they sacrifice a creature. They just like don't actually read the second ability. <laughs> they just another line. They just text. assume it's a second enters the battlefield ability and don't actually read what right, it says. It's not an enters the battlefield ability. It's a whenever. Yeah, th this card is also one of the most insane uh, recurring nightmare cards you can oh, you can assemble. So when if you're already the monarch and this comes into play, do you get to make them sacrifice a creature? Yes. Holy. All right. Well, that's powerful. So anyway, this card pretty sweet. I, quite, I believe so. Quite maybe, cheap. Maybe don't quote me on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll check. The I believe on so. that one. Anyway, so quite cheap, sweet card. Get into your decks. What, what kind of decks do you usually play it in? I mean, play it in like the mono black control deck, but I've even played it in uh, blue black control. It's good in that deck. Uh, black white control. It's nice in that deck. Can definitely play it in the rock. The rock, yeah, likes that card. That's true. Uh, basically, anything that's casting five mana black spells with double pips is like. Yeah, and definitely look look to get it into any deck with recurring nightmare. That's it's a definitely really, really good one with that. All right, so the topic for today. Uh, is one that, that Jared and I uh, like talking about often. This is mulligans. Uh, and this episode's sort of twofold because in, in one way it's in one way it's sort of just uh, we're trying to help you get better as a magic player broadly because you can take a lot of the lessons you get from this uh, episode and ideally apply them to other formats. 
But also, at least locally in Victoria, mulliganing is doubly important because of the way the mulligan system works. Yeah. So to really quickly review before we talk about all this, to, to give you context, in Victoria, at least, we have a house rule where the mulligan system for Canadian Highlander is you get your seven, then you if you mulligan, you go to six, then if you mulligan again, you go to a second six. Then if you mulligan, you go to a five. Then if you mulligan again, you go to a second five. So basically it's seven, six, six, five, five, four, four, three, three. So on and so forth. All the way down to one. Um, that means you just get more mulligans. And the spirit of the rule is we want there to be as many games as possible. 100 cards adds more variants. Um, you don't want people not drawing lands. So this is the, the idea of the rule was to try and combat uh, non-games. In practice, it actually just means that you should mulligan a lot because you get a better chance at well, seeing you, you a good hand. You should mulligan your, your seven a lot. Yeah, yeah, because you want the best chance at seeing uh, a really good hand, and they're really powerful cards in the format. It also is is contextual, of course, based on your deck and the matchup, if you know it or not. Yep. A lot um, of factors. That's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to talk about when you might mulligan, why you should mulligan, how you go about deciding to mulligan, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, Jared, let, let's talk about a very high level. What are What's the simplest reason you should mulligan? When, like... Uh, maybe level one when you mulligan. Either you don't have any spells or you can't cast any spells. So right. either you have too many lands or too few lands. It's yeah. like level one of mulliganing. Like you have six six lands or more, or you have one land or fewer. Yeah. So probably probably shipping it back. Yeah. That's that's pretty clear cut. We're we're good on that. Where it gets a little more complicated is when you get to hands that have lands and spells. Should you just always keep lands and spells? No, this is sort of level two. It's the the most common mistake, especially made by newer players. They see their hand lands, maybe even a couple castable spells, some more expensive spells for the later game, but they don't take the context of either their deck's game plan into into account, or maybe if they know the matchup, they don't take the matchup into account. So they don't account for the external factors. Right. And so when we're talking about your game plan, the the biggest thing that you want to do, and I actually wrote an article about this maybe a year ago now uh, that you could find on the Canadian Highlander webpage about mulliganing in Highlander, but one of the really important things to do when you're mulliganing a Highlander is uh, figuring out what the game is about. And actually, if you want to just like get better at games broadly, I've discovered this is like a magical technique, is you should just like look at the game like before or in the middle at any time, just ask yourself the question, what is this game actually about? Because We've just talked about it. There's level one of like, I want to be able to cast my spells, but you want to be able to get to the sort of like higher levels of what actually matters, what's what's actually significant. Yeah. And so when you're thinking about mulliganing, that's actually just a microcosm of that. You want to evaluate how this game's going to go, what your deck's trying to do, what your game plan is in this in this game, um, and and then evaluate your hand in that context. Exactly. Yeah. So talk about talk about game plans for me. What are some different game plans that different decks might have. So there's two general camps I'm going to put game plans into. Either your general game plan is reactive or proactive. So an example of a reactive game plan is white-blue control. That's one of my, my favorite decks to play. And it's sort of hard to look at a game plan for white-blue control since your game plan is entirely based around stopping your opponent's game plan. Right. So you're reacting to what they're doing and hoping to stymie their progression. Uh, whereas a proactive game plan the, the most obvious example is a mono-red deck. Your proactive game plan is to just reduce their life total with all the resources you have available, your cheap creatures, cheap burn spells. Uh, sometimes you need to get your burn spells to point it at creatures, but you're just trying to get them from 20 to 0 as fast as possible. Okay. And so when, when you're looking at a game plan 
um, or when you're looking at your hand, let's say you you know the matchup. How does that inform your choices? And and so especially with reactive decks, knowing the matchup is super important because that some of your some of your reactive cards will be good in certain situations and certain matchups, and some of them won't. That's just the nature of reactive cards. Like you don't need Wrath of God against the no creature combo deck. Whereas you don't necessarily want a hand of four counter spells against the mono red aggressive deck just because they're going to be too slow. So you have to make sure when you're a reactive deck and you know the matchup that you're keeping hands where your answers line up against their the their game plan. And when you're on a proactive deck, you need to make sure sometimes your threats are really important, which ones you present and the order you present them. Like, for instance... Uh, if you're a mid-range deck against a control deck, you're really looking for like fast planeswalkers. You're looking for cards like Thrun the Last Troll. You're looking for things that are really going to tax their answers and make it really hard for them to to answer the the things you're presenting. Fair enough. Does that mean that proactive decks have a wider range of keepable hands than reactive decks do, or how how does that manifest? Um, it sort of depends on how the decks are built, but I think. In general, yeah, proactive decks are going to be able to keep more hands than reactive decks. And sorry, when when I say a range of keepable hands, what I mean is, like, for some decks, there are, you need very specific things. And so, like, let's say you're playing a, a very all-in combo deck. You're you're so like like ten fins, for example. Your range of keepable hands is a lot more narrow because you need very particular things in your opening hand to be able to win. Um, versus a, a deck like Mono Red, which can look down at a hand of two lands, some castable spells. There's more of those hands that exist, basically. Yeah, and I and the reason I think proactive decks get more keepable hands is because I think it's easier to build a highly redundant uh, proactive strategy than a reactive strategy. Yep. All right, so let's talk getting better. How do you get better at mulliganing? How do you get better at evaluating game plans and evaluating what games are about? Uh, so I think the, the biggest level up is just trying to take your time and not just instantly keeping or mulliganing uh, your hands. You have to look at them and really, really try to figure out. We've talked in a couple previous episodes about realizing what your deck's game plan is, realizing how it how it sort of lines up against various other matchups. And especially once you know the matchup and you know your deck's game plan in that matchup, just once you look at your hand, trying to like sort of visualize how the game will play out and once you get enough reps on a deck, you'll be able to do that better and better. You'll be able to sort of figure out how the games are going to go and how certain hands will line up against a deck. And just being able to do that is so paramount and being able to mulligan correctly. Yeah, super valuable. So, so, so big things you can do, play the same deck for a long time, or not necessarily a long time, but play, play the same deck a lot. It's going to help you evaluate uh, whether cards are good or not in, in matchups. I mean, yeah. some of them are very obvious, but... Um, some of them aren't, right? Like uh, in Highlander, since you have maybe 65 odd spells in your deck, like maybe the top 10% of those are going to be home runs that are obviously very good in the matchup, but like more than greater than 50%, you actually just have to figure out whether you actually like that card or not. Working out whether you like having Ponder against the green-white aggressive deck is not necessarily intuitive, right? Like you can make arguments for it either way probably, but you don't know if, if that's necessarily a card you want. The 
based on our experience, I think you do want it. It's pretty good. But yeah, <laughs> but you have to figure that out. It's not obvious. And and another thing you have to consider is whether you're on the player of the draw for some hands. That'll that'll play into account a lot. Like for example, it, taking your last example, I really love ponder on the play always. Yeah, ponder on the play always. Uh, in some matchups, ponder on the draw is actually just not what you want to be doing. Like just it's, too it's, slow. It's often still very good, but in like a few select matchups, just like you'd much rather have have the action already. Yeah, you don't you don't have time to go look for it. Yeah. Um. So when we're talking about mulliganing, uh, it's important to keep in mind in Highlander that we get the second six. So how does having a second look? or even having two looks at a six-card hand impact the way that you make choices in Highlander. All right, so especially with Highlander, where you have pointed cards, which are typically, like, extremely powerful, uh, you're somewhat incentivized. It Once again, it depends a bit on your deck, but you're somewhat incentivized to mulligan aggressively for a powerful opening hand. Just because of the nature of the format, you really need to be doing powerful things in the first three turns, especially if you're a proactive deck. Uh, so mulliganing for a mox hand in an aggressive deck is off often something you'll you'll see them doing, like trying to get it, get it so they can go two drop, then three drop, uh, especially on the play, is is a really important. Yeah, and, and one thing that happens is that, especially in games where you know the matchup, since you have more mulligans, you're incentivized to look for cards that, that work. Right, that, that actually do things in the matchup and not just look for cards that kind of pedal along and, and hope to sort of that the top of your deck is kind to you. So one player who I think is uh, really good at this is Pat. Um, he made the finals of the Highlander Championships this year, for those yeah. of you who watched that. He's well known for like largely doing a lot of the innovation on the pod archetype. It's called Pat Pod for a reason. And one of the things that he'll do is like he'll very happily go to second four. Uh, if he knows the matchup and he's looking, and he knows he's looking for specific, specific action, um, he will really gladly mulligan like six card hands that are like two lands, a mana dork, and then some like reasonable three and four drops. He just like is quite content to toss those back, looking for a hand that has more of the the action that he likes. Well, and, and that's a harkening back to when I said when you get reps on a deck, you're able to mulligan more effectively. He's played this deck so much more than everyone else and he's just able to make those mulligan decisions because he's played every matchup and he knows exactly how the matchup's going to play out and he knows whether or not a hand is going to be capable of winning him a game most of the time you obviously can't look at a hand and know whether or not you're winning for sure yeah but he he knows just by looking at it yeah and so one one other piece of advice i would give is when you're one of the things you're going to do when you're evaluating your, your game plan in the context of your hand so you, you open up your opening hand, you look at it, and you're going to have like seven cards or, or whatever. Um, if you know the matchup, you can start going through the cards. I mean, obviously, with the lands, you're just looking at whether they cast your spells or not. But with the spells, you're looking at them and deciding, um, is this card good in this matchup? And a really good technique to develop is not just looking at the sort of magical Christmas land situation with the card, being able to be a little more... Uh, realistic Obje and objective about yeah. it, right? Exactly. And one way that you can do that is look at the card and say, how does this stack up against a creature? How does this stack up against a removal spell? How does this stack up against a discard spell? How does this stack up against a counter spell, right? Like pick sort of big archetypal pillars of magic and look at how that card handles that. Um, so like, let's look at a card like, like Domri Raid, for example. Um, 
Dominate is a card that uh, is pretty good against uh, against discard because as long as you get it into play, you're going to be able to get some card advantage back. It's it's powerful in that sense. Um, it's D O M R I A R D E R A D E R A D E. Yeah. With the, with a space in the middle. Yeah, it's not raid rade, I guess. Um, yeah, and and just to go over it, Domri is a here it is a one red green planeswalker comes in with three loyalty, plus one. Look at the top card of your library. If it's a creature, you may reveal it and put it into your hand. So it's getting you some nice card advantage, which is why it's good against discard spells. Minus two target creature you control fights another target creature, uh, so it's pretty reasonable against creature as long as you have the biggest thing. And minus seven is you get an emblem with creatures you control have double strike, trample, hexproof, and haste. Yeah. So this is something that lines up well against removal spells because it is not a creature. Yes. Uh, it lines up okay against discard as long as it doesn't get discarded itself. It's going to help you recover from, from being behind. Uh, it's not great against counter spells. It's sorcery speed. So, But it's yeah. three mana. So it, it so can potentially get under them. So you're not trading down too far. Yeah. And, and it's cheap enough where you're going to be able to double spell with it some of the time. A reasonable amount of the time. Yeah. So. Um, and, but, but this is actually where I want to caution against looking at this card and, and claiming it's good against creatures. Because it has a mode, which is good against creatures, that mm -hmm. it's okay. But as Jer said, you have to have the biggest thing in play. You have to be able to win that fight for this to actually be effective against creatures. So if you're behind on board, uh, and the context of your hand insinuates that you might be in that situation, uh, it's important to, to keep that in mind. So that's, that's one example of not sort of getting trapped into a sort of like magical Christmas land. This card's great in every situation. I'm going to play it and alt it immediately. Yeah, and, <laughs> and the, going back to looking at what your spells actually do as opposed to just looking at land, lands and spells, Domri is a really good card because it's really polarizing in what matchups it's good in. Yeah. It's it's really, really, really good against control. That's that's why it's in your deck. It comes down early enough that you can maybe sneak it under a counter spell and then you're just going to sit there and likely ultimate, and then they're likely going to lose to it. Uh, it's really not good against aggro, as you mentioned, just because it's not good at dealing with the board when you're behind on board. It's also likely too slow against combo. Yep. It's just not going to do enough, and it's all, and it's pretty good versus mid-range. It's like... Yeah, it's contextual. Just, yeah. The, against mid-range, almost everything seems to be contextual. Yeah. Because they, but, they play on both halves of the, but it's, of the board. It's like not a card I'm sad to see in a mid-range. Yeah. So let's maybe sum up uh, mulliganing. Because I think we've sort of wound around a couple of different things, but let's let's go through the process. You're going to look at your opening hand. You're going to try and formulate a game plan. You're going to evaluate each of the cards in your hand with regards to that game plan, and then you're going to make your mulliganing decision. Does exactly, that does that yeah. sound about right to you? Yeah, and if you have any external information like what the matchup is, like whether you've mulliganed, whether your opponent's mulliganed, uh, that you can take that into account as mm -hmm. well. But Whether you're on the player draw. Exactly, make, that's make another sure good you, one. You, you push that into your decision. So, our, our, I mean, our biggest advice is play. Uh, you just need to play with your deck. Um, when you're first starting out, I really like keeping a really large range of hands. Me too. Uh, I, I would incentivize you to try things rather than mulligan things that you, th then, that you don't know about. If you think, I have no idea whether this hand is good or not, keep it, find out. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I... I would sort of caution against is if it's just a hand where you just like have to draw two lands and it's great, like don't don't keep those ones. Keep mm. keep keep hands that get to cast some spells at least. Because if you if you just like keep a hand that's two lands off of being able to do anything and you just brick off and die, 
Uh, it's going to be really hard to evaluate whether that hand was actually well, any it, good or not. I don't know. I think it's pretty easy to evaluate. It probably just wasn't very <laughs> it good. It just wasn't good? All right. Yeah, fair enough. So, so anyway, so yeah, try lots of hands. Uh, and speaking of trying lots of hands, what we're going to do for uh, the rest of the episode is we've prepared some sample hands um, that we are going to talk about and evaluate, uh, talk about what the game plans might be against various different matchups, and then we're going to evaluate whether we think they'd be a keep or a mulligan. So the first hand is one from a, a Jeskai mid-range deck. Um, Jeskai mid-range, pillar of the format. Its, it's game plan is going to be contextual, game to game. But broadly speaking, you're looking to interact with what your opponent's doing while applying pressure with efficient threats. Yeah, yeah. really you want to play a cantrip or a removal spell on one, play a removal spell on two, then play threat, play threat, play threat. Yeah, win the game. So the hand we have for you is Time Walk. Uh, this is one on a blue, take an extra turn after this one. It's a sorcery. This card's quite good. It's all right. Uh, Hallowed Fountain, uh, which is a blue-white uh, dual land. That's the shock land for, for blue-white. Mm -hmm. uh, Plains. So this is you know, just the basic land, Plains. Pretty hot. And we have Vendillion Click. This is one blue-blue for a fairy... I think it's a fairy wizard. I think you're right. It's definitely a wizard. I was going to call it a rogue and talk about how good it is in the Prowl deck, but it's only kind of good in the Prowl deck. Yeah, it only turns on about half the Prowl cards, maybe. <laughs> uh, so this is a flash flying 3-1 that when it enters the battlefield, you can look at a player's hand um, and then... Actually, you make them reveal. You can... Or, Ye yeah. or no, it's look. It's look. Because it, you don't have to reveal your own hand if you choose yourself. Uh, so you, so right. you look at a player's hand and then you can choose a card from it. They reveal it, put it on the bottom, drew on yeah, the one. The card gets revealed. Though. Yeah, the card gets revealed. Non-land. If also. you choose a card. If you choose a card. You don't have to. Uh, Flame Slash, which is a single red for... Uh, Sorcery speed, four damage, burn spell to a creature. Mm -hmm. Pretty good. And then Jace the Mind Sculptor, uh, well-known sculptor of mines. Uh, uh, known known to win a game or two of magic. Yeah, so this is two blue blue for a, a Planeswalker that upticks to Fate Seal your opponent, so you look at their top card, you can put it on the top or the bottom. Uh, it zeroes to Brainstorm, so draw three cards, put two back. Um, from your hand, doesn't have to be yeah. from among those three. Uh, minus one is just unsummon bounce creature, and minus 12 is uh, you win the game. They they exile everything else, and then their hand becomes their deck. Yeah, functionally reads you in the game. They, they die, and it has three loyalty. Um, so let's start with saying whether we would keep or mulligan this hand, uh, and let us know in the comments for any of these hands if yeah. you have we'll, opinions. We'll or... try to give you a little bit of time so you can pause the video and decide whether or not in the dark you would mulligan it. We're on the play for this one. Yeah, you're on the play. This is your seven, and it's game one. You don't know what you're playing against. So we'll give you one second. Pause the video if you need to. All right, you paused the video if you needed to, so now we're back. Uh, we would mulligan this hand. Yeah. And that sounds a little crazy, probably, because Time Walk is insane and it's castable. But why Why, we're, why are we mulliganing this hand, Jer? Uh, so the first reason is you really need two lands for this hand to be functional. Two more lands. Two more lands. Like, sure, if you draw a blue source, you can cast a Vendillion Clique. If you draw a blue and red source, you can cast Flame Slash and Vendillion Clique. But that's likely not getting you there uh and your two lands off casting your jace your flame slash is uncastable you have no way to find more lands uh like i'd be much more likely to keep this hand if the time walk was ponder and time walk is actually not a card you necessarily want to see in your opening hand the real power of time walk comes from being able to set it up later in the game when you have an established board you're swinging for a bunch of damage you maybe have Planeswalkers in play, then you get to time walk, swing for more damage, activate your Planeswalkers again. 
I realized I made a mistake. What? Uh, well, there's only six cards in this hand. We didn't say what the seventh card was. Oh, whoops. Yeah. The seventh card is Glorybringer, by the way. It's a big, big bad dragon. Uh, three red red for yes. a dragon. The Scourge of Standard uh, for a little while there. Yeah. Uh, so this is a 4-4 four, four flying in haste, and when it attacks, you can exert it to deal four damage to a non-dragon creature an opponent controls. Yeah. This shouldn't affect your mulliganing decision because it costs five, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I think and, that's why and I forgot so it. You, you need to draw two red sources to find it, three lands total to cast yeah. it, and yeah. So I, I think this hand is just like too likely to brick off. Uh, we did we did a bit of a calculation. We you're thirty three percent to miss. Is it this one? Yeah, yeah. You're 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 about thirty three percent to miss a land. To to hit land. No, no, no. To hit your sixty four in two draws. Okay. In two draws, okay. but but even if you hit th the point is even if you hit third land, and that you're not that likely to hit fourth land, and, and that isn't you don't have any manipulation. Exactly, and you're not necessarily drawing the land you need. You possibly draw a tap land, possibly mm -hmm. draw a colorless land, could draw another plane. Yeah, that this deck plays three, so so yeah, uh, yeah. It, it it certainly has the potential for disaster. Uh, are there any matchups where you would keep this hand? Uh, I think the matchups where I'm most likely to keep this hand are matchups when where casting Vendelian Clique is likely very good. So in like really like kind of the slower combo matchups, I may be more likely to keep this hand just because I can like maybe sneak in a Vendelian Clique. Yeah. And that's almost good enough on its own. Yeah. But other but, than that. Yeah, against aggro this hand can't cast its removal spell, which is pretty awkward. Uh, against control, like these cards are exciting, but they're slow, um, and you don't have any ways to interact with what they're doing in the early game. Um, yeah, you're you're not, you don't have any way to like, if you had like a daze or a forceful maybe against yeah. control, this is more likely because you're able to force through the jace at some point. Yeah, but I think control is just like super excited to see you like not do anything until you cast a Vendillion clique, yeah. and you don't have the lands to. Set up like Vendelian Click on end step on tap cast chase. Yep. So if you have the nuts on top, sure, this hand might pan out. Yeah. But I think on average, this hand is gonna gonna stumble and likely not have the tools to catch up. And then you're gonna die. It's gonna be sad. Yeah. And you'll be sad. And then we'll be sad. It'll all be bad. Sad, sad, bad, bad. Um. Okay. So example number two. This is a hand on the play again. Uh. Again, this one's a seven. Uh. And this is in the mono red deck. So really aggressive. Um. For your information at home, this deck typically plays between 31 and 34 lands. Let's cut right to the middle. Say it's playing 32 and a half. Yeah, um, we'll we'll try to post some, get some lists up in, yeah, the, we in the description. We definitely will. But yeah, so let's 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 say you're playing 33 lands in this deck. So your hand is Mountain, uh, Rakdos Cackler, uh, Falcon, which is a one red black hybrid. Oh, sorry, it's a red-black hybrid for a 1-1 one, one with Unleash, so it's functionally a 2-2 two, two that can't block. It's a 2-2 two, two that can't block. Uh, Falconrath Gorger, which is just a single red 2-1. It's a vampire. Also a berserker. That doesn't There's matter. no berserker deck. Yeah, the, that the creature type doesn't matter. Uh, Sulfuric Vortex, this is one red-red for an enchantment that says at the beginning of each player's upkeep, Sulfuric Vortex deals two damage to that player. Uh, this can't kill Planeswalkers anymore. Uh, if a player would gain life, that player gains no life instead. Uh, Shard Volley, this is a single red for a an instant that as an additional cost, cost to cast it, you have to sacrifice a land and it deals three damage to target creature or player. Searing Spear, this is one and a red for an instant that does three damage to target creature or player. And Firebrand Archer, this is one and a red for a 2-1 
human archer. The human's deck is maybe a deck, uh, but this card doesn't go in it. The archer's deck is not a deck. I mean, there's a lot of archers. There's not. There are. Literally any any creature with a bow in the picture is now an archer. It's a rabbit. I'm dead serious. This is actually true. Look, I, all right. We'll, we'll talk about it later. I'm not saying this archer's deck has support, uh, but... Just implying it. I mean, I imply a lot of things. So this is a 2-1 human archer that whenever you cast a non-creature spell, it deals one damage to each opponent. Um, so this is another hand we would mulligan. And uh, it's a one-lander. It's a little sketchy. We forgot to give the time to, to pause. Oh, uh, well, All right, spoilers. We, we would mulligan. mulligan. But if you wouldn't, please tell us why. Uh, yeah, so I'll go into a bit the reason why we would mulligan. Uh, this has a few of the things you're really looking for in a, in a hand in a, such a proactive deck as Mono Red. It's got two one-drop creatures, which is great. Uh, it's got a two-drop creature, which is great. It's got a couple of removal spells, which are great. It's got a three-drop. Uh, but it's only got one land. Yep. And while you can keep some one-landers, uh, it's really dangerous to do so, especially on the play, and especially when you have a card like two cards that are functionally not castable currently and likely aren't for the foreseeable future. Uh, Shard Volley, you likely can't afford to sacrifice your land. Uh, you're just not in a position to be able to do that. You're not going to cast any more spells after that. Uh, and Sulfuric Vortex is three mana. Your odds of drawing uh, two lands off the top are not high in a what is now a 32 land deck. And then we'll become a 31 land deck once you draw yeah, the first one. Yeah, it's, le it's less than 15%, yeah. in case you were wondering. Not not high. And Firebrand Archer, although it's a really potent threat, one of the best turn twos the deck has. One of the better archers. I will point out, by the way, there's 74. 74 right. archers. Uh, looks like most of them are draft trash. Um, draft trash, tribal, it could be a deck. So Firebrand Archer, although it's a really, really potent threat, you really want to have mana and spells in reserve for it to be at its at its best. Yeah. And you just don't have those in this hand. You have two potential ways to trigger it. You're as I already mentioned, you're likely not cast in the shard volley. Uh Searing Spear is great in this hand, but yet again you need to peel land. Yeah. Uh just going turn one, one drop, turn two, brick off, cast another one drop. And then if you brick off again, you probably just lose. Yeah, on the spot. Um Ways that this hand might become playable, if that shard volley is another creature, or if one of the one-drops has haste, that makes a big difference. The fact mm -hmm. that neither of these one-drops get to attack the turn they enter the battlefield is not insignificant as well. Uh, if the Sulfuric Vortex was a two-drop, not a three-drop, this hand gets more enticing because the upside on hitting is better. Because you don't have to hit two, you only have to hit one. Yeah, so just, just because the Sulfuric Vortex and the shard volley are like close enough to just not functionally being in the hand... We yeah. think we'd rather see a a six twice than yeah. stick it I, out with this that, seven. That's honestly the biggest thing, too, is that you get two looks at six. And Monored is maybe one of the biggest examples of a deck that wants to keep as many cards as possible because it is sort of just a seven-card combo deck. It's looking to cast seven lightning spike, strike or uh, lava spikes and just 21 you that way. Yeah. So density matters. And, and mulliganing in Monored sucks. It, you it try does. and play a consistent version of the deck so that you don't have to mulligan. Um, but it's important to be able to make those hard decisions, and I, this is one of those ones. And and the deck is so redundant that it actually does mulligan all right anyways, yep. and it does have a few of those power cards like Price of Progress, like plays a couple four damage burn spells like Exquisite Firecraft, that you're just 
able to power through even with the, yeah. the deficit in cards anyways. Is the deck a, is just so strong. Yeah. Is there a matchup where you might keep this hand? Like some, some matchup where having like one drop, one drop, and Sulfuric Vortex is like maybe the most important card. I was thinking something like, like against like maybe like blue-white control or something where... I was going to say... Where Vortex is so important. May maybe, but I honestly think that you're so unlikely to cast it on turn three, and they're so likely to be able to deal with your board of two, two one-drops Two one drops that, like, it's just not worth it. Fair enough. Okay. All right, well, let's move on to hand to number three. Uh, so this is a scapeshift hand, and it's, it's on the play. So scapeshift, really quickly, we're going to be talking about... There's two different ways you can build this deck. Uh, and we've talked about this before. One is sort of a rug, kind of like mid-range control, uh, get him with scapeshift at the end uh, deck. And the other is a four-color, more all-in on the combo version. Uh, I think this version is uh, better. I agree. Um, but enough about me. Um, but that's the version we're going to be talking about. So again, we'll have a list posted. So the hand for this one, you're on the play again. It's Ponder, aforementioned. Uh, it's Kadama's Reach, which is a... Uh, two and a green sorcery. It's arcane, in case you were interested Get in splicing. Get your splice on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which says, search your library for up to two basic land cards, reveal those cards, and put one onto the battlefield tapped and the other one into your hand, then shuffle your library. Uh, three visits. So this is one and a green for a sorcery that says, search your library for a force card and put that card onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Worth noting, it comes into play untapped. It's great. And it doesn't say basic forest. It, it does not. Forest, forest card. Can be Tropical Island, can be Breeding Pool. Heck, if you want to go get a Taiga, go nuts. Buy you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Scalding Tarn. So this is just the red-blue fetch land. This can go get, for one life, can go get you an island or uh, a mountain. Then Sky Shroud Claim. Uh, this is three and a green for a sorcery that says search your library for up to two forest cards and put them into play, then shuffle your library. Uh, again, same thing as three visits. Except into, double. Into play. Can be any kind of forest. Twice as good. Yeah. And clearly. Then, and then the last card is Clutch of the Undercity. Uh, so Clutch of the Undercity is one blue blue for an instant. Or sorry, one, one blue, blue blue black for an instant that says return target permanent to its owner's hand. Uh, its controller loses three life. Now this is a really good aggro card. You get to uh, tempo people <laughs> all right, out all right. and deal I'll, damage. Now I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> Uh, so you're playing this exclusively it, it also for the transmute, yeah. <laughs> and you get to pay one blue-black, discard this card, and uh, put scapeshift into your hand from yes. your library. It goes and gets a four-drop, so scapeshift uh, is the obvious reason why you're playing it. Uh, worth noting, this is not an ability that can be countered, so yes. this is great to do on turns where the your control deck is like, like <laughs> clearly leaving up counter magic, and you're just like, I'll tutor with impunity. Yeah. Um, so we'll give you a second. I won't. I won't screw the pooch this time. Uh, all right, pooch unscrewed. You're back. Welcome. Uh, we would keep this hand. It's a one lander, but uh, this hand is actually actively and, very good. And notably, you're. We we didn't forget a seventh card this time. Mm -hmm. It is a mulligan to six, so you also get a scry. Yes, that's correct. Um, yeah, we keep this hand, and actually, this hand's really good. So we're gonna hit you with some math really quick. You're 92% to hit a land in this with Was this it hand. That high? It's that high because you get a scry, you get a draw step, um, because you uh, for your second turn, and you get four looks with ponder. So you got six looks uh, in a 38 land deck, and you actually only need one success. This is the second important thing about this hand. Yes, because you have uh, three visits and Kadama's reach. 
Um, if you hit second land, you're hitting fourth land because three visits lets you cast Kadama's Reach. And then if you hit fourth land, which you will, you're up to six. You have to hit six with Sky Shroud Claim. You only need one more. Yeah. Uh, to and and it'll be in your hand because of the Kadama's Reach. Uh, and then you can transmute your clutch, and you already have Scapeshift in your hand. So this hand is like, if you scry land to the top with this hand, you're like very likely to be killing them on turn five. Uh, yes. And it's even possible you could kill them on turn four. Uh, I think. No. no. Sounds believable. Uh, turn two, three visits. Turn three. Claim. Claim. Turn four. Yeah, you could kill them on turn four. I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, anyway, you could, you could, you could potentially you just, turn four. If you just run off opponent. lands, that's yeah. all you need to do. So, you're really high odds to hit a land, and you only need to hit one. That That's the biggest reason why, why this hand's very keepable. Um, let's talk about, I mean, we've talked about what the game plan is with this deck. This deck really clearly has its game plan lined up in this hand, right? Because the game plan is ramp, then cast scape shift, and you have both those aspects. You're a linear deck. You only have one plan, um, like I, at least in the builds I've played. I know other people have tried to put other plans in the deck. I well, there is another plan. It's cast madcap experiment, but this also does that great. <laughs> that's, so you know that's true. If you're against the deck that <laughs> where madcap's better, you can madcap them. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, this is a hand that you need to play the deck a little bit. To get a sense of, but actually, this yeah, this sort of looks like one of those sketchy one-landers we were looking, we were telling you to be careful of. But if you actually think about it, with the scry, your draw step, you get four looks off ponder, yeah, and the rest of your hand is just set up to give you the lands you need in order to operate. Uh, this hand's actually a pretty easy keep. It's, yeah, it's actually just like an insane hand. Yeah, it's actually just not not especially close, um, which is a shame. We should have made this harder, I guess. But that's okay. Uh, if you said you would mulligan this hand, speaking of, uh, fair enough. Not unreasonable. Uh, I can see how oh, there only being one land is a, a big turnoff for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people just sort of have a policy of, of not keeping one-landers because they think too, they're too sketchy. But I, I would implore you to look at the fact that this hand functionally only needs one land to hit six. Uh, to sort of like negate those feelings that you might have. And it has tools enabled to find. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, let's do one more. Um, would you like to do this one or this one? Um, oh, let's do this one. Yeah, let's do that one. So the last hand, this hand is a green-black rock hand. Um, this is a hand that you're you're taking on the draw, uh, and it's your seven. It's your first your your first hand. So the hand is Thoughtseize. This is a single black for uh, a discard spell. It says target player reveals his or her hand. You choose a non-land card from it. That player discards that card. You lose two life. card's really good. It uh, is very, very good. Infuriatingly so. Uh, second card is Duress. This is a single black for target opponent reveals, uh, I guess it's their hand now. And you choose a non-creature card, non-creature non-land card from it. Uh, that player discards that card. And then you have Swamp, Verdant Catacombs, Twilight Mire, Forest. I don't know why I ordered them this way. And Temple of Malady. I mean, M Malady. Malady. Um, God, that joke is hard to get out of your head. I just never said it. So you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I. Fair enough. So Temple of Malady. This is uh, a green black. It's, this is the green black Scry Land. Twilight Myers, the green black Filter Land, and Verdant Catacombs is the green black Fetch Land. Yeah. So your your mana is insane in this hand. Great. Not gonna have any problems with that. Uh, we'll give you a second to think about it. Whether you would keep this hand or not. All right, we're back. You've thought about it, or you just kept playing the video. Either one's fine. Jared, what are we doing with this hand? Uh, in the dark, we're mulligating this one. 
Okay. It's just just doesn't have quite enough action. Uh, and there's a lot of matchups where two discard spells just aren't going to cut it. Your mana is great. You do have the temple for a scry, but you still just have the chance to brick off and not draw action. Uh, there are definitely matchups where I would keep it. Like, if you know you're against a combo deck, this hand is about as good as it gets for the rock. Like, double discard is exactly what you want against combo. Like, you don't have a lot of cards that are great against combo, and these are two of them. All right. Let's say you did keep this hand in the dark. Um, what does it need to get better? Like, you're scrying with Temple of Malady. What are you, what are you looking for to improve it? Uh, so it's sort of matchup dependent, but generally you just want... Uh, proactive thing, so likely a planeswalker. Okay. Or a or a solid creature that's just gonna start generating you value. Like a Sylvan library would be pretty great. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Something like that. So so the reason I think the biggest reason why we've mulligan this hand is uh there's like a uh, uh, sort of category of matchup where it'd be good against combo would probably be fine. But there is just the chance for you to brick off and die. If you see and and the rock runs into this wrong half of their deck problem often and this hand has not enough ways to mitigate that, mm -hmm. and you're already starting really slanted towards one half of your deck. So if you draw no. more of the anti-combo kind of discardy sort of things, but you're a, that's the wrong, not the right matchup for them, you're just going to die. Just, yeah. Just... And th this hand has the, the likelihood to just put you so far behind on board, you need to be drawing a very small percentage of your deck. Like, I, if I keep this hand against a creature deck, I... I'm thinking I'm gonna need to draw a wrath like stat, and if I don't, I probably just probably just lose. Probably over. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, that's gonna conclude our examples for today. Uh, a little bit of a shorter episode, but we thought this was pretty uh, heavy. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of information to get into your heads, and you know, uh, there's only two of us. There's know. only two of us. We didn't want to bombard you. Yeah, just a bunch of reasons. But we still have our concluding segment. This is powerful magic. Buh, 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 buh. All right. All right. So Jer's doing powerful magic today, unsurprisingly. Uh, what do you got for me? All right. I have a tail. I was I was playing high tide. You know, a very linear combo deck. You have a tail. Uh, yeah, a tail. Oh, with an A, and an L, and an E. That's the and important a, letter, I suppose. Um, not an eye, though. No. Not not a tail is in a thing that you can wag. No, no. I, I was Great. playing, anyhow, Perfect. I was playing High Tide. Uh, I was in oh, the 1-0 bracket. Uh, and I had won my first match uh, in the natural fashion. I, like, High Tide had generated different mana with Palancron, Blue Sun, my opponent, for 100,000. Perfect. Uh, next game, I uh, made some black mana in there and tendrils them. Right. Very... Very typical kind of stuff. Typical high tide. Uh, the next game, my opponent, uh, we were playing some Drago. He was playing a Bant flash deck. Uh, on turn three, he tapped out to play Kitchen Finks. Uh, unbeknownst to him, I had a, I had back to basics in my hand. Right. The the classic alt win con of high tide. Yep. Uh, so I played third basic island, played back to basics. I think he had a Darkar Wastes, uh, Sun Petal Grove and another non-basic land in play, and then he uh, proceeded to not cast another spell 
for the rest of the game yeah and, and not win it is kind of funny because against high tide a lot of the times people in the early game turns of the game will be like well i gotta get my threat on board have to tap out with impunity and then like sometimes yeah you just, just have this die. one card that just like <laughs> well <laughs> well that was a nice idea you had yeah. there and so we shuffle up for game two. Oh, okay and uh we both keep seven uh we're, we're playing Drago again. Mm -hmm. uh, this time, we get some more more stuff in play. It's like turn five or so. He taps out for something. I remand it. Uh, draw back to basics off the remand. See, look over. He once again has no basics. So I just get to untap, play back to basics. Wow, that's a powerful and, combo uh, deck you build here, Jared. And yeah, my linear combo <laughs> deck turns out it has a... A new one-card combo in yeah. it. Linear combo back slash basics. prison deck. <laughs> back to basics in your opponent's lands. Yep, yep. <laughs> Potent. Yeah. So That's a good story. I yeah. like High Tide a bunch. It's I a, love that deck. It's fun to play. Not, not as much fun for your opponents. Yeah. Like, almost well, always. And, and when I drew back to basics, I like thought I didn't say it out loud, but I thought in my head, I was like, man, we were having such a good game. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was going to have to work out how to sequence these spells around your counters. You yeah, had like, some flash I had I had high tide in my hand. I had a way to find time spiral. Right. Oh, God. But, and then it just all got ruined by the fact that this back to basics card is great. Yeah. And that's like, <laughs> in the Highlander high tide, that's like what you're looking to do every time, basically, is cast High Tide into Time Spiral and go from there. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Untapping with 12 mana and 7 cards is usually minimum enough to is win usually, the game. yeah, usually yep. good enough. Well, that's going to be our show for today, so uh, we appreciate you watching. Uh, a reminder, next week it's actually just going to be Jared and I as well, plus maybe a special guest, still trying to work that out. It's in the works. TBD. Our, our people are talking to their people. Uh, we're Shaking out the contract. I'm not a very good negotiator. Yeah. Um, we need some kind of shrewd negotiator, probably. Uh, or a shrewd negotiation. That's the Kaladesh card, right? Yeah. All right, I'll have to go fi get 50 copies and drop them on this person's doorstep. <laughs> it's the perfect plan. <laughs> shrewd negotiation. I'm not sure that's a All right. shrewd uh, negotiation tactic. It's probably not. Anyway, so thanks so much for watching. We'll be back next week. Uh, a reminder that this show, and just like every other show brought to you by Loading Ready Run, is brought to you by you with your support over at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. So thanks so much for that support. Uh, and without further ado, we'll see you next week. Later.